Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord out of Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 2. And we'll read through 16. Thus saith the Lord, and Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered then, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the, little ch- let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the way that it comes to us, the way that it shines light into the dark places in our lives. Lord, we pray that as you bring uh, conviction uh, through your word, that you would convict us on how to be better at loving one another. Lord, that your overflowing love would mark us as as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I figured family camp would be the best place to talk about divorce. (laughs) This is a passage that does mention and talk about divorce. And divorce is a a painful topic. And divorce is one of those things that when people go through it, it it is impossible for it to not mark you and uh, be be something that's there forever. But what... Uh, What I want to look at in this passage is not the section about, uh, not talk about divorce, but talk about the passage as a whole and the way that Jesus addresses two different groups of people and rebukes them about their motivations, discussing how it is that they are motivated, what it is they're trying to accomplish, how it is that that they are motivated in this passage. And what we'll see as we look is that there's two kinds of motivations, There's two ways to come to God's word as his people. Two different motivations that bring you to Jesus to ask a question. Two ways, it turns out, to look at our lives. You can look at it like these Pharisees do. You can approach Jesus the way these Pharisees do. Or you can approach Jesus the way the disciples learn to do through their error. Now a Pharisee, we're going to see, looks at himself and asks... What's the least painful way that I can get what I want? It's self-centered. God may come into it. In this case, he does. But God comes into it as a tool in my self-fulfillment project. It's self-love. It's turned in on itself. It's out for itself. And Jesus marks the Pharisees right out the gate when they come in asking this question. 
And then he presents another way of living, another way of seeing, another way of being, of approaching life. Instead of self-interest, instead of self-love, he calls us to be motivated by our love for God, by our desire to be near to God. Instead of looking first at our, at our own desires, looking at our own agenda and living to fulfill it, Jesus says, come, follow me, come, be with me. Instead of using God and our neighbor for our agenda, Jesus invites us into his agenda for the world. And that's going to involve laying out ourself, laying ourself down, and taking up Jesus' mission for the world. Submitting to Jesus. Submission means coming under the mission of another. Now, there was a machinist that worked for the Ford Motor Company when uh, Ford was still alive and running the company, early in the company's history. And this machinist had spent his early life um, carefully taking one piece at a time, taking tools home at the end of the day. Right? Never a tool big enough that he would get caught, but he would slip uh, a slip of a tool or a piece of a tool or a piece of a machine into his pocket until he had filled his home garage with Ford Motor Company's tools and machines. And uh, then one day he was, uh, a traveling uh, evangelist came through town and he went down to the tent to see what was going on and probably listen to the music and, and he ended up getting converted and he ended up getting baptized uh, in the river there. And on his way home, he went by work to explain, I have recently become a Christian, and I've been stealing from the company. I need a cart to bring back everything that I stole, and I, and I want to ask for your forgiveness. And they gave him a cart, and he brought back all these tools that he'd been stealing over the years. Now, the manager that didn't really know what to do as this cart of tools shows up. Um, and so it was a first, right? This had never happened before. But Mr. Ford was in Europe. Uh, he was at a European factory trying to learn um, some new things that they'd been doing with the factory system over in Europe, over in Germany. And so he sent a cable to, to Mr. Ford saying, this guy just got baptized. He brought back all of these tools I don't have a way to re-enter them into the system. I don't know what to do. And uh, what should I do? And Mr. Ford's response was, damn the Detroit River. Baptize the entire city. <laughs> if baptism and conversion to Jesus would make his employees honest, he would be glad to use it to his own advantage. Right? He was glad to have Jesus as a supporting actor in the story of his company. Right? This will work out great. Now, the Pharisees approached Jesus to see if he would be, take a supporting role in their agenda. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, many Jews at this point, and even some Gentiles, were convinced that Jesus uh, was the long-promised Messiah. And so there were crowds around him regularly. Uh, but the important people the ones that already had power, right? it, it was easy if you had no power to say, hey, new power has arrived, and he seems nicer than the old guy. 
That was easy if you didn't have any power. But those that had some power, those that had some influence, they still hadn't made their decisions yet. Some of them had been approaching him at night in secret, but there hadn't been anyone that had been in power that was publicly throwing themselves behind Jesus' agenda. And these Pharisees show up and they want to get a handle on what Jesus is about. So they show up with a, a test. They're going, to, they're, they're going to ask him some questions. Which side are you on, Jesus? Are you going to fit into our agenda? Are you with the Sadducees? Are you with um, the Essenes? Are you with this other group? Which group are you with? Are you with us? Are you against us, Jesus? So they show up with a theological exam. And they come to him with a question about divorce. And it would have, this would have been, in this, at the time, it would have been one of those questions that helps them decide which political party Jesus is a part of. How is it that you really treat Moses and the scriptures? And the Pharisees, they would have been the equivalent of sort of the conservative nationalists, hoping to restore Israel. In their version of the story, Israel had fallen from glory. She used to be free. She used to be self-governed. Israel had always paid taxes, but before, the taxes were all local, right? So, and now we're paying all these imperial taxes. They go off up there to uh, Jerusalem or to uh, uh, Rome, D.C., and spent in all sorts of crazy ways. But uh, he says, what, uh, but... Our, you know, we've now, we, we need to restore the government to what it was, limited by law, instead of their freedom being limited by force. And the Pharisees believed that Israel's exile was retribution from God for disobedience. They believed that Israel's restoration depended upon the obedience to God's law. So when they interrogate Jesus, they come in with a question about obeying God's law. But it turns out they have the wrong end of the stick. They brought their own agenda to God and said, okay, what do we need to do to, to, to accomplish our agenda? Are you with us? Are you against us? Right? Their obsession with their own agenda had them missing out on God's agenda, who was literally standing right in front of them. God's plan came walking into their front yard, and instead of dropping everything to follow him, they squinted their eyes, tilted their head, and gave the Messiah a theological exam. They checked if Jesus would be a benefit to their agenda by asking for his thoughts on divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he says, well, what did Moses command you? Right? He's going to pass the theological exam part. They said, well, Moses said we can write a certificate of divorce. Right? So far, so good. Except Jesus knows that they're missing the purpose of the law. The law is supposed to have a limiting effect, a limiting, uh, uh, civic laws, laws dealing with relations between neighbors, which is what this one is, deal with minimum requirements to limit the civic effect of sin. It's not describing the ideal marriage here. This isn't a, the, 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 the laws about divorce don't come along and say, as long as you get this stuff right, you're good. When, most, when Moses makes allowance for divorce, permitting it in certain circumstances, he's not therefore, say, therefore saying that divorce can be a good thing as long as the laws are kept in the process. The fact that there's been a law allowing divorce doesn't mean that divorce is therefore commendable. 
Keeping the divorce laws is not the purpose of marriage. Jesus hears their questions and he uses it to point out that they're confused about the way God's word is supposed to be used. They've showed up to play baseball. They have all of the right equipment. But they're pitching the bat and trying to hit it with the ball. Oh. They've confused what the law is about and have misunderstood what it means to live. And so Jesus corrects their misunderstanding on the purpose of the Bible. He says, you're missing out. You're missing the purpose. Let's look at Genesis. Before we get to the, the divorce laws, he says, let's back up and look at Genesis. And he gives them a little, uh, a, a, little, uh, teach, a little example of how it is that you're supposed to be interpreting the scriptures. The book of Genesis, he says, this is our archetype. The Garden of Eden, before sin entered the picture, is our example of what marriage is supposed to be. And Jesus answers, and he said to them, because of the hardness of their heart, this is Mark 10, uh, starting in verse 5, he wrote this precept, this law, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Right? He says, you're getting these things out of order. Let's read the Bible as the Bible is given to us. Genesis comes first. It's our archetype. The law has a limiting civic effect. Divorce is not God's intention for marriage. Laws about how to dissolve a marriage are for sinners. Because that's what they need. Now... This is very straightforward. Jesus is not trying to hide anything. This isn't one of those times where he tells a story and everybody goes, I don't quite get it, Jesus. This is just straightforward exegesis where he says, you have to read this in its context. What comes before? And he reads the context of the law. And then he interprets the, context, the, the law in light of the context. That's just normal reading skills. Exegesis is the fancy word for reading skills. In spite of how straightforward this is, though, Jesus and the disciples go into the room later because they're like, ha-ha, Jesus, Jesus won the theological exam. Take that, Pharisees. And they get in this side and they're like, okay, Jesus, though, we got to explain a little bit more, right? I know out in public we acted like we were on your side because we are with you, but we don't understand either. The disciples are confused because they're like, but isn't that really how it works? Right? As long as the divorce is legal, everything's good, right? God's not mad. After they withdraw from the public eye, they ask for further explanation. And Jesus says, you can obey the letter of the law and still be in sin. Right? Your, your hatred for your wife can still be legal, technically. Right? But that's not the purpose of marriage. In the house, his disciples... Uh, this is verse 10, asked him again about the same manner. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, you can file all the divorce papers properly and get a perfectly legal divorce. But getting a divorce in order to marry someone doesn't keep you from adultery. Right? He, he's, he's saying you're missing the point of the whole thing. And here's the thing. 
almost every commentary I open to look at this passage, digs in so hard about what this passage means that they interpret it the exact same way the Pharisees do. They miss the point too. They, they forget to read it in light of Genesis. Many people approach Jesus' declarations about adultery here in the same spirit of the Pharisees' original question. Because if we think Jesus is merely disagreeing with the Pharisees about the rules of litigation, we have learned nothing in this passage. Instead of growing as a disciple, we end up being the best Pharisee for Jesus that we can be. We're Jesus' Pharisees and we're really good at it. Because what Jesus is actually saying about marriage is not about providing legal minimums for your spouse. Marriage is a relationship of love and loyalty. It's about giving yourself to someone that is not like you. As a husband and wife give themselves in love to one another, honoring and loving one another, they're reflecting the self-giving love of God. Kindness never retreats into litigious correctness because legal hatred is still hatred. The love of God is never given in bare legal minimums. God loves with an unbegrudging delight. He gives gifts and joys far beyond the bare minimums. And the Pharisees come in saying, Let's talk bare minimums, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. Look at Genesis. Look at the Garden of Eden. Was that a bare minimum? Is that a bare minimum gift that God gave there? And the, the, the disciples say, can you explain more about this? And, he, and, and the, the, the love of God doesn't work that way. He gives gifts. He gives joys. He piles them on. He overflows with them. I mean, just... Think for one second about how delicious the world is. Our tongue is not even a particularly big part of our body, but God seems to care a lot that, that the tongue gets really excited. There are all sorts of things in this world that, that have all sorts of flavors. Uh, I, on the way down here, we stopped at a, at a coffee shop, and I... Um, ordered uh, espresso over ice, you know, an iced, iced Americano. Um, and it was so bitter. So it was like a punch to my tongue. It was, you know, it was like somebody took my tongue and was like, doof, 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 doof. And I was like, oh, this is my favorite. <laughs> that is exactly how I like my coffee. It was so just uh, um, somebody beating up my tongue. And I thought... I can't believe that God thought of this, right? That he would make coffee taste so good. Now, some of you guys like your coffee in other ways, where you say, okay, I want one shot of espresso, 24 ounces of milk, and, and then half of a, half of a caramel, where, what is it, whatever caramel comes from, you know, half of a bucket of caramel right on top. And, I, and that, that was God's idea too, right? All the different flavors, all of the different foods that we eat, all of the different kinds of apples. I mean, we're in Washington State. I once traveled down to Florida, and I was looking at the apples, and they had two kinds of apples in the store. One was labeled red, and one was labeled green. And I was like, but where's all the other ones? 
And then Florida, they were like, other ones. I was like, oh, yeah, well, we're from Washington, where we have all the different kinds of apples, even at small stores like Trader Joe's. You go in there, like, you've got 15 different options for apples. That was God's idea. God does not deal in bare minimums when it comes to the way he loves. The love of God never deals in bare minimums. Sunsets, fresh salsa, none of these things are bare minimums. Love never stops at mere gifts. God goes so far as to even give himself. He doesn't just give gifts. He doesn't just give hot coffee on a foggy morning. You guys know about fog. You're from Seattle. It's really foggy here, except for like just a couple of times we visit during the summer. At least that's what I hear. He does give hot coffee on a foggy morning, but he doesn't just give that. He gave himself in Jesus Christ. God goes so far as to give himself in his son. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we celebrate Pentecost, because he gave himself in the son and in the spirit. Jesus is the eternal son of God the complete and perfect revelation of the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. God the Father dwells in him, and he dwells in the Father. To receive Jesus is to receive the Father. This is, in fact, the great and glorious good news. We can receive God, and God can receive us, because Jesus became a man. Often, we even think of the gospel in terms of how it can fulfill the agenda that we have for our own lives. We want good kids who grow up to not be drug addicts and vote mostly Republican. And so we say, okay, does the gospel give me that? Does it give me good kids? I want money. Will the gospel give me money? I feel bad about myself. Will the gospel relieve that guilt? Will it counteract my existential angst? But the gospel is our restoration with God achieved by God. God, part, God's agenda was to restore us to himself. He's revealed himself in Jesus. And the good news is that we can know and be known by God and be a part of his agenda. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. You may know the way to where I am going. And this is when Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you have known my Father. And Philip says, that's what we want. Lord Jesus, show us the Father. 
That would be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, (laughs) Philip, how long have we been together? You still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe based on the works you've seen me do, Philip. Right? In the incarnation of Jesus, God gave himself. He gave himself in his overflowing love. He's also given himself to us in the gift and the presence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God has made his people into his temple in which he lives. God's, you are, the Spirit dwells in you, 1 uh, 1 Corinthians tells us. You are God's temple. Each Christian is God's temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, it says later in 1 Corinthians. God gives far beyond any bare and legal minimums. He gives far beyond even sheer simple gifts. He gives himself to his people. And when we think of our love and our kindness for one another in terms of accomplishing legal minimums, what's allowed and what's not allowed, rather than in terms of faithfulness and loyalty, we ignore the shape of God's kindness towards us. God never deals with us by meeting the bare minimums. He's gone out of his way to think up ways to bless and love us. And this isn't even because we first loved him. He came to us when we did not love him. He came to us interrupting our lives. His love for us is not taken up with this insipid, little-souled attitude that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. God's love is generous and overflowing. And it's not because we're worthy, not because we're lovely, but because he is going to make us lovely. His lavish open-handedness towards us makes the Pharisees look like little miserly scrooges in their singular stinginess. Thinking in terms of allowances. They're frisking Moses to make sure that their hatred is legal in the eyes of God. But God has sent his own son to die in order to open up the pathways of his kindness. And so the disciples should not be like the Pharisees. But this is why it's important to read this as a story. Because he finally, they said, don't be like the Pharisees. And they say, yeah, but why? It kind of seemed like they had a good idea. And he's like, because they're wrong. And then he says, let me show you what you should be like. Because the little children come in next. They, the parents bring the children in and say, Jesus, will you bless our children? Will you touch our children? And the disciples rebuked who brought them and said, we're in the middle of a theological discussion here. This is not age appropriate for the children. This is Jesus. <laughs> the disciples rebuked those that bring the children in. And Jesus, when he saw it, he was greatly 
displeased. When people say, don't bring the kids to Jesus, Jesus is greatly displeased. And he says, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. And he says, this is your example. This is what your example of love should look like. This, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, even in, in the commentaries um, that I looked through, these two passages were, were split into two different sections. And they're often uh, preached that way, put in two different sermons, because they're treated like they're completely separate. But it's the same story. They never leave the room. This is how the discussion about uh, the, the Pharisees' questions about divorce ends. These children burst into the house in the middle of the conversation, and Jesus says, finally, someone who gets it. <laughs> because they come running up to him, sticky-handed. <laughs> and, and Jesus says, come on over here, perfect. Instead of being like the litigious and stingy-souled Pharisees, the disciples need to become like these little children. Jesus says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God as these little children will, by, will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. The Pharisees and the disciples both had been coming to Jesus testing him. Asking his opinions about, the, uh, asking his litigious opinions about divorce, trying to figure out what the minimums they need to do in order for divorce to be legal and proper. And Jesus says, quit acting and thinking like divorce lawyers. Don't come to me like a divorce lawyer. Come to me like little children. Come ready to be loved and blessed and played with and enjoyed. Because that's what the gospel makes possible. We can approach the Father, and it turns out he's not a lawyer. He's a Father. He loves us and blesses us and joys us. The kingdom of heaven, the rule of earth by Jesus, is not a, bureauc a litigious bureaucracy. The kingdom is not a heavenly city hall where we spend all of our energy standing in lines and getting our forms stamped and signed properly. It's a family. And we are the children of God. And God is our Father. And we gather to God because He loves us. And He wants to be, ble and he wants to be blessed and embraced by his love. We, we want to be blessed and embraced by his love. It's a completely different way of looking at the kingdom of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, First John tells us. That the Pharisees were missing the whole point. They were thinking that once they got the rules all straight, that, they, that God would look at them and say, good work. You have passed the kingdom of heaven's bar exam. Come on in. <laughs> but Jesus picks up the children and says, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a disciple rather than a Pharisee. To not be priggish and rulish and concerned with earning God's favor. To not think in terms of bare minimums and what you can get out of a situation. Always scheming 
to make sure that your hatred is legal. Instead, as disciples, we learn to, to think in terms of how much we can give, how much we can love. They look at what they have and they think, this is much, how much I have to lay out. Like children playing tag. When you watch children playing tag, they will run with all of their hearts. And that's what makes a great game of tag. Not because if you get tagged, everything falls apart and the world's end, or the world ends. Not because if you get tagged that they get to hit you in the face with a brick. Right? It's, you, you run with all your might because it's fun to play the game of tag. You don't, you don't have to give kids a rule that if you get tagged, everyone gets to punch you in the head to make them run harder. Right? They run harder for the love of it. They run with all their heart for the joy of a great game of tag. Jesus says, follow me. Come be a part of the kingdom of God. This is a place where you can give everything, everything in pursuit of me. And the Pharisees say, well, what's the minimum? Right, they're the kids that stand over in the corner of the field thinking that if no one notices them that they're winning at tag. <laughs> we, we all know that kid who's like, I won because I hid behind a tree and nobody noticed me. And everybody else is having fun running around and he's thinking, how do I win? <laughs> he's missing out on the game. But the disciples say, wait, I can give everything? I can give everything in my pursuit of the kingdom? I can give everything in my pursuit of the Lord? That sounds wonderful. Help me, Lord, to give it all. We can stop thinking of love and kindness in terms of bare minimum and look for ways to be like God who has gone far above and beyond the bare minimums, even giving up his very self so that we could be adopted into his family. He has removed every obstacle between us and his everlasting kindness so that we can be his child and pursue the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the, for the way you give yourself. We thank you for the way that you overflow. Lord, it's so hard to stop thinking in terms of minimums. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our inner man, growing our desires and our love, growing our hunt for the kingdom. Lord, help us to give everything. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. And please stand as we turn to number 435 to sing.